We are so happy to have you here for our second episode in the Mobility, Accessibility, and Design series. If you didn't listen to our first episode with Professor Kat Steele on Universal Design and Accessibility, make sure to check it out. Today's episode, you don't want to miss either. We had an inspiring conversation with Josh Halstead, an activist, designer, and author who shares their perspectives and expertise on design pedagogy, co-design, crip time, and many other ideas. He also brings the unique perspective of how these ideas have played out in their own experience living with a disability, which has led to truly impactful innovations. Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on our minds. Boom. Boom. We are so happy to be talking with Josh Halstead, an epistemic activist working at the intersection of critical disability studies, design pedagogy, and community organizing. They are a recognized contributor to design dis- disability design discourse and seek to unsettle and rupture normative systems of thought by centering marginalized perspectives and recently co-authored a forthcoming book, Extra Bold, a feminist, inclusive, anti-racist, non-binary field guide for graphic designers. We are so excited to be talking with you. And like, I think that introduction doesn't even, as awesome as it is, doesn't even do justice to the impact of your work. So we're excited to learn more about that today. Thank you so much. Yeah. And as Melissa said, we are, we've been inspired by your work on the creative process. And we know you're passionate about the cultural and social value of centering disability and design. Could you share with us when you recognized this work was one of your passions? And sort of how did you begin this journey in the field of design? Yeah, that's a big question. So I, for those of you who are listening and might not have Uh, visual representation. I'm uh, disabled. So I started this journey from day one, kind of hopped right into a world that wasn't planning on me being around as I, you know, I I always tell people I was much better suited mind-wise to be a lawyer or an accountant, but it's just the fact that I had to design my way around so many things growing up that I became a designer. So how I started to kind of center uh, this idea of disability identity and, and culture as primary lenses through which we uh, create things through was I was actually asked to do a talk on inclusive design uh, by one of my colleagues. Uh, I was at Landor Associates at the time doing brand design. And um, I had no idea what inclusive design was uh, at all. You know, And uh, it was funny. I mean, there was kind of this assumption that because I was disabled, I must be some kind of an expert on it. So I started to do research and talk to folks. And I really realized very soon that I had a perspective because I, I found a lot of the, the knowledge that was given on disability had a lot to do with medical knowledge and not necessarily around kind of either the cultural aspects of disability, the identitarian aspects, and even kind of the social or political oppression kind of encasings of disability. So I just started to ask, well, what happens when we start to broaden that aperture a little bit and design um, through that, right? And when you, when you do that, then all of a sudden, I, I mean, as, as a design educator, I saw an inroad to talk about something really specific around intersectionality 
you know, when we know disability only as a medical phenomenon, something that's locked in the body and not a part of society or politics, etc. It's really easy to other disabled people, quote unquote, and kind of think about disabled people as one identity, right? And I, you know, for me as an educator, I thought, oh, it's not, it's not a good uh, way to kind of go about it. So um, this really opened up a lot of, you know, very generative conversations and, and new ways of kind of thinking about not just how do we design through like an anti-ableist lens, but anti-racist, um, anti-sexist, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how sometimes those, it just makes me think of just like the labels that we have on people, but how there's just this overlap of when you're learning things about anti-ableist, like how that actually does impact, you know, other domains as well and can be applied there. I'm curious when you were saying as you were growing up and sort of redesigning your environment to maybe help you navigate through that a little bit more. Is there any any particular situation that you remember that stands out that you had to redesign when you were growing up? That's a good question. I mean, it's like kind of picking, picking the right one. Well, I don't want to repeat what I have in the Creative Mornings talk, so I won't talk about the way that I, I drew. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is therapy. I mean, they really didn't have... So I have arthrogryposis, that's the medical diagnosis, among other things. But when I was growing up, we were really focused on uh, how do we do therapy to extend my range of motion, you know, kind of um, make sure that we can get as much functionality, quote unquote, out of this body that I'm in, right? And um, arthrogryposis is really interesting because it manifests uh, differently with everyone. So there is not necessarily like a guidebook. Um, and well, this is how you how you do it. Right? So I just remember really early on, um, I talk about my mom in the Creative Mornings talk, uh, you know, creating a device for me to draw, and that that's just part of the overall process of us designing therapy for me. <laughs> you know, so designing a way to uh, stretch my legs out, designing a way to walk around, to you know, stretch out my my feet. That's one thing. You know, like that that was a very uh, formative form of design for me and also kind of early on helped me kind of poke a hole in the medical industrial complex <laughs> and say like well i don't know everything um, and, and this is not to jab in a bad way like there you know we need uh you know the medical sciences uh, for for many things but it's just to say that there is kind of the the, the objectivity of that that world started to get a little blurry for me uh, which was good right so that's a great example, I think, speaking to biomechanist audience where we might be developing physical interventions or movement interventions for people where we might unintentionally be designing them in a way that is not accessible to everyone. So that's a really good mm-hmm. point for us to consider in our work. In one of your talks, you share your ideas on the three paradigms of disability and design, one of which is asking that. One of which is that society still commonly views disability as a loss, but you, which you've kind of been speaking on, and you challenge that by asking what are the beneficial parts of disability and what can we gain with disability? How do you think your views shifted when you framed, dis- reframed disability in that way? And then how can others better understand this paradigm that you present? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, so I write a little bit about it in Extra Bold. I mean, my, my journey has been really discovering my identity, right, and how you kind of reframe narratives, especially when you, when you are born disabled, and that means 
socially, at least, you know, in Western society, as a detriment or something that's tragic, you know, kind of, and you just get those kind of social narratives fed to you from, from day one. So it took a while, and really uh, the process for me was to move out of alienation and into disability communities and to really say, oh, other folks <laughs> hop into a taxi cab and have the taxi cab driver ask uh, what's wrong with them also, <laughs> you know, like we all have these, you know, simple stories, even on a Monday when I'm tired <laughs> and I don't have a uh, head or heart space to talk about it. <laughs> so, yeah, I could imagine. <laughs> yeah. So then, you know, like, I mean, there's, so there's that solidarity, right. And that kind of community that starts to form and then it starts to loosen or start to, you know, starts to melt some of that ice that's been formed around your identity. And, you know, that ice is saying that you're tragic and you're you know, not worthy and you know, you're not sexy and all these things that you know come along with kind of a social label of disability um, societal rather so how do I how did I move to that idea of gain well one I mean I, I completed a master's in disability studies and in there and also through kind of working in disability communities came into contact with folks from deaf communities capital D and came across this idea of deaf gain um, looking at deafness as something that's cultural and, and really kind of beneficial, just the counter narrative of what happens when we flip that paradigm upside down. When we look at deafness not as loss of hearing, but a unique kind of uh, cultural way of uh, experiencing the world, of speaking with one another, of inhabiting space. And so when I talk about disability as gain, um, it's heavily borrowing on deaf gain as a, as a concept, but it's also um, borrowing on, you know, feminist epistemologies like standpoint theory, right, or sit point theory if we want to be anti-ableist. And this idea that everyone has, you know, kind of like rupturing, if you will, like a la the bio, I guess, <laughs> this idea that that knowledge is objective and we're kind of like putting on a silver platter where all knowledge, everything that we're kind of dealing with is subjective, you know, and everything is partial. That's what, that's what Donna Haraway says, right? And so if that's true, if, if everything, um, if all knowledge is partial and all knowledge is situated, you know, depending on our kind of lo- location, identities, you know, social, you know, cultural, geography, etc., then you know everyone is kind of drawing from that identity and their location in that matrix. Um, so, you know, why not disabled people also? So from there, right, just to kind of come down to. Um, an abstract example rather than kind of stay in the clouds, which I'm okay at, <laughs> is to say like, well, we have really, so living as a disabled person, and I'm using identity first language on purpose for those of you that are like, well, what's up with that? Um, <laughs> I'm doing it to ruffle some feathers uh, if it's contentious to you. So disabled people experience oppression at a very palpable level, right? Like if I, just to go back to this uh, taxi cab example, if I'm in a taxi and the taxi driver uh, asks me what's wrong with you, then I realize, oh, there's like this strange like social norm out there that says I should look and behave in a certain way and I'm obviously not that way. So now I kind of have an insight into what normal is, quote unquote, or acceptable, right? And that might not be legible, um, to my brother and sister who don't have legible disabilities, right? Yeah. So that knowledge over, over time, over a lifetime, is is its own expertise, right? And we kind of look into inclusive design and participatory design, co-design, design justice. You know, everyone's kind of turning toward this idea of you know, designing with 
folks who are most impacted, most marginalized um, by either you know design or society at large because they have expertise of the systems that are marginalizing them, right, disenfranchising them, et cetera. Yeah, it's interesting too when you say the taxi cab example because I think of you know there's the other disabilities or you know there's cognitive disabilities and there's stigmas around all different types, but when it's a physical one, it's I guess much more like you know you can see it visually and kind of it's the first thing you know or I guess it like stands out more than some type of other like mental disability or something and and I think maybe the, mm-hmm. you know then that. It's interesting to think about why we sometimes people feel like okay with asking about it and, you know, bringing it up when like, you know, probably wouldn't ask someone like, why are you depressed or why do you have a mental or cognitive disability or something like that? Or what's wrong with you? Right. Yeah. It's just something I think about when you tell that story. Yeah. I mean, there's always this like tacit, right, illegible standard. Usually, right? That's just how our brains work. You know, we like to categorize things and make things really neat. Um, so it's really obvious, you know, when like we're calling out something that doesn't fit our mental model. But we're always contrasting it to something. And right? if I say like you're not normal, you know, then like, well, what the heck is normal? <laughs> and if I say like mm-hmm. you're you're, mm, yeah. if you're rude, <laughs> right, right. Right? like you're being rude, it's like, well, what does it mean to be polite? You know, and that that idea of normal right. and politeness shifts, you know, based on, you know, culture and location, et cetera. So. Right. And I love that uh, you brought up a great point about like an objective truth for like always being in the context of our humanness, which I think is something definitely as engineers and scientists, we kind of forget. <laughs> and like that all of this was sort of, you know, all of our science is founded by human discovery. And so, you know, it's laced with all of the imperfections of that. And and so I just, yeah, I just really like that point and emphasis too. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, you know, damned lies, lies, damn lies and statistics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Even just defining what nor- like normal is, like you were saying, like your good friend, Sarah Hendren, that we were lucky enough to speak with mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, like, her, she's got that whole chapter about like when normal became a thing physically, right? Like when they, they started to, doctors started to, you know, actually map out what percentiles, you know, children and um, adults should be at, you know, height wise, weight wise. And that started to shape that idea. But I love this other side of like culturally what is normal and, you know, that we can change that objective, what lens we put on that objective may be truth. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel like you've challenged us in how we think about things. And recently you responded to an article uh, that said we tend to consider accessibility and spatial rather than temporal terms. And you shared your thoughts uh, that crip time and spoon theory should both be considered in human-computer interaction more broadly. And I'm not sure that most people, I definitely didn't immediately know what these terms meant. So uh, could you explain them and how they can be implemented in the into human computer interaction? Yeah, that's a good question. So I loved the article that was written by Alex Halberg of the Disabled List. And Alex was really drawn out. I mean, they're just a wonderful design critic thinker. Not that they would identify as a design thinker, they'd probably agitate against that, um, rightfully so. But um, I just I really value um, Alex's perspective. 
and Alex was discussing this idea of, I mean, one, one thing that Alex drew out was this idea of um, if you are expecting folks to show up to a conference, right? And that conference, like a Zoom conference, and that conference is 100% accessible, uh, has ASL interpretation, like everything, you know, uh, everything is there in place. But you can only see it at the time, like one time, that that's inaccessible to a bunch of folks with chronic illness, right? Because sometimes, and and just many other types of disabilities that might conflict with this idea that we can kind of show up uh, a rigid kind of productivity-led capitalist, if I can say so, schedule, right? Like be here and that's it. So Alex was kind of drawing out the, the point that, you know, that that's not, it might be accessible um, the way that we're used to thinking about it, but it's not accessible when it comes to the, the temporal dimension. So recording it and then allowing folks to kind of access that um, content on their own time um, makes a lot of sense, right? Because some folks might not be able to show up on the, on the kind of day, time, et cetera. And that, that idea gets the idea of crypt time, right? So crypt time, crypt is this uh, reclaimed term from what might be obvious, this idea of cripple, right? So just like um, the term gay or queer, crip is politically reclaimed. And uh, to crip something uh, is really to, I mean, there are many, many different ways you can, you can think about it, um, but it's really to kind of flip it around in favor of disabled people and also to expose um, the norm- normativity embedded in something. You know, that's how I would describe it. Um, at least I can describe it similarly. So crypt time, if we kind of think about it through that lens, is looking at this idea of time, right, and to twist it around in the in favor of disabled people, folks who are maybe chronically ill, etc. Um, and then also expose uh, the normativity and just kind of this idea of locked time or you know quick time, whatever. So you know that that has plenty of consequences when it comes into human-computer interaction. Um, you know, one obvious thing, uh, example is this idea of the Zoom chats only you know, being offered one time, or maybe synchronous learning in the time of the pandemic. It also might have something to do with dynamic content, right? So if we're like a retailer, for example, who in 2021 were cited for, I think, 70% of the um, ADA lawsuits for inaccessible um, websites that violated ADA compliance because they have a lot of dynamic content that shifts all the time, right? So that would be something to consider um, in the kind of the UCI world is if you're if you're if you have a website and you change things out every couple of days, right? And then on the other end, you have someone who can only maybe access your site. You know, their body mind only allows them to really access your site every. I don't know, you know, uh, maybe once every two weeks on a good month. It doesn't make sense, right? There's kind of this normativity that's assumed that folks can check the Instagram every single day, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is not always true, right? So there's this kind of normal, you know, normate, quote, unquote, as uh, Rosemary Brian Thompson would say, who's a disability studies scholar, at the center of that, right? We're assuming a normal body, quote, unquote. So that's, that's that. Um, and spoon theory is just a wonderful thing of, disability culture and it's this idea i mean if folks read the article they'd know they'd get a better idea of it rather than <laughs> beyond my description but simply it's this idea that you know not every every day might be different uh, again if you have chronic illness if you have chronic fatigue 
if you have myriad cognitive disabilities, learning disabilities, etc., you know, you might not have a bunch of energy to do these things. You know, a bunch. Uh, so if you and sometimes you have limited energy. So every single thing that you do, like getting out of bed, taking a shower, showing up to the meeting on time, preparing for a podcast interview, each one of those activities takes a spoon. Right? And if you kind of imagine that you're holding five spoons and that's all you have for the day, and taking a shower, you know, getting out of bed, preparing for the podcast, doing the podcast, um, I already took four of those spoons. And you still have to go grocery shopping, have dinner, and have you know a conversation with mom, friends, etc. You only have one spoon, <laughs> so it's really realizing that like energy is not distributed equally across many of the folks that we kind of assume have this kind of even spread of energy, and you know compound that not just on an individual's capacities, right, but how social inequities play into that, how identity politics play into that, right. So it just gets, you know, infinitely more complex. So it's it's a both way, you know, it's a way to both understand different embodiments, but it's also a way to understand how those embodiments are implicated in political and social domination, right? And bringing that to mind when you're designing something asks us to question, well, what body minds are we really centering in this design, right? And often uh, it's it's not someone who would, you know, find resonance with yeah, I think those concepts are really useful, both in just the setting of working with other people and, you know, then also in the content of our work, too. Um, I think so you shared Crypt Time is making time accessible to people. And then the spoon theory is just better understanding this distribution of energy and that people with disabilities, you know, might taste spend more energy than, you know, a non-disabled person would on uh, tasks. So thank you for explaining those to us. And maybe something that would help us put these tasks into or these ideas into something more tangible would be sharing a project that you've uh, either been a part of or you've shared a lot of incredible projects. So some that we've heard of from your talks are art prompts for the autistic experience as well as this body is worthy which is a photography project celebrating bodies that fall outside of the social ideal so those were two examples of projects that you've shared in your talks um, can you share with us one of your favorites and maybe use it as an example like i said for some of the concepts we've been talking about and the co-design process yeah sure and I would also, if, if you don't mind, I'd love to just revisit this idea of Krypton for a second, because I think it is actually a more expansive thing that I, that I said. Sure, yeah, please. And, and then, yeah, I'll, I'll move into um, the other. But I do want to say that, like, Krypton is pretty radical in praxis, you know, when we practice it. So an example of Krypton in action is what we do in this uh, community of practice, that I co-founded uh, called CryptJoy. And it's, you know, CryptTime is flex time and CryptJoy uh, or CryptTime is kind of also setting down our kind of values around, especially in this kind of like uh, society where we're expected to shoot a text right back, you know, if someone texts us or, you know, return an email or something like that. There's this assumption, you know, when crypt time enters, especially like an organizational structure or the structure of a collective like crypto, you know, 
that if someone, like if you don't hear from someone for two weeks, you know, it's not that they're blowing you off, their body mind just might be going through a season, you know? And there's this like really radical patience that you hold, right? And, there, and, it's, and there's no kind of um, need to defend yourself and you come back into that space by why, why you didn't respond. There's just this kind of really, there's this quipping of time, right? It's just, it just kind of flows completely differently if you really tell it quick time. So again, that, that idea, you know, especially with how we're moving, I feel like we are wanting things to be more participatory, right? Especially in design. I think it's really trendy to say something like, oh, you know, we're design thinkers and we're working with people who are most impacted, right? But in that process, if you're, working with disabled folks and you're still trying to drive a really hard-edged design schedule, right? Like I need your feedback by Wednesday. If we don't think about things like quick time, then we're not getting any further away from, you know, this kind of neoliberal standard and we're not being inclusive, right? So I just think it's really important for us to think about, you know, not just like how does quick time show up at the, in the outcome of human computer interaction, right? But how might quick time and screen theory you know, impact the folks that we're collaborating with. Um, and then also, you know, radically shift the structure that we hold each other to, whether or not we've found a need at the time uh, for quick time and sprint theory, right? Often it makes our kind of body minds just relax a little bit and, and, and move into a different flow. So I think that that's what I mean when I, when, when I talk about it. Or when I kind of, I think, did that comment on LinkedIn, was that I would really love quick time to inform design processes. Though, of course, I didn't say that because I'm not very clear. And that's why people listen to me, because they're like, what are you, what's the point? Oh, he still hasn't said it. Oh, there it is. <laughs> why did it take an hour for him to say exactly what, what he meant? <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, I just take you into the forest. and then like, You like to keep us hanging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. <laughs> How, uh, so let's talk about Hannah Sawyer's This Body is Worthy Project, yeah, and how it's related to co-design. I uh, really appreciate that project because it started with, I mean, I also I also try to foreground design projects that are disability-led, right, not just projects that are done for or with disabled people, but that are done, you know, by and for disabled people. That's what this body is worthy is, you know, and it's since expanded. But, you know, Hannah, again, I mean, if you folks visit the website, you'll understand more about the project. But, you know, Hannah uh, started my interpretation of it, this body of worthy, this body is worthy through her own kind of identity development. And it started when she wanted to photograph parts of her body that she had had trouble with in the past, right? just because they didn't necessarily fit within social ideals. And I think the website says something to that effect. But what it's um, been as it's moved forward is, you know, Hannah was originally working with a photographer and they would start um, and hold these workshops. And the workshops would invite a bunch of different folks, disabled and not disabled, but often the folks who were uh, attracted to the workshop were from marginalized identities, right? And as they do the workshops, then they're writing these messages, either claiming you know, the oppression or writing affirmations uh, on the kind of their experience in society. And as it moved forward, 
they moved from this this kind of disability led by and for disabled people and kind of as kind of autobiographical project that Hannah had into a project that's uh, very intersectional, right? So trans folks are on there, queer folks are on there, um, POC folks are on there, right? So that project, just by virtue of bringing folks into the fold and letting it kind of organically do its self-organization process rather than kind of sticking to this rigid, you know, this is what it is. I just think it's a wonderful example of both co-design and also how we can think about ableism and racism and heteronormativity, you know, all the way down as things that are, you know, involved and, um, you know, conspire with one another. So this idea of co-design is really, you know, like what is inviting folks to the table, not just to an interview. <laughs> and, then, and then letting those decisions and the knowledges and the ambitions and the passions and kind of the directions that they bring when they're at the table to determine not just the outcome of the project, but also the knowledge um, that's created by the project. You know? So it's a challenging, it's a challenging thing if you if you're really in it. You know, it's a little bit more than design thinking. Right. And there's something very personal in there too. Like you said, it started sort of this autobiographical aspect, her sort of coming to her authentic identity and self and like opening and being vulnerable, sort of opening that up, it sounds like like helped invite other, you know, helped invite and allow for that flexibility and ability for it to kind of morph into these other things that without forcing it into being those other things. Does, does that seem right? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it seems right. And like, you know, one other point that I think is worth, though this project might not necessarily be addressing this, but is like often when we think about disability design um, and we're not disabled, right? Or even if we are disabled, uh, the main, a mainstream way of thinking about how design um, and technology can intervene in the disability problem, quote unquote, right, is to fix things, right? We need to fix technology to make it accessible. We need to fix architecture to make it accessible. We need to fix education to make it more accessible. And there's kind of because we have guidelines, there's kind of this preset of prescriptions that we have ready made for this disability design nexus. What happens is that often um, we don't ask uh, disabled people primarily what they want. So Ashley Shu uh, is a scholar and professor at Virginia Tech. Told me the story of a student who went pretty far into the program um, and was designing, really excited about designing exoskeletons, you know, to help folks who. Um, were in our experience in paralysis, help them walk, right? And this person got pretty far into the project, into the process um, until fairly late in the game, um, and then asked someone who was one of the, the intended users, and this person said, well, actually, I never, I would never use an exoskeleton. Actually, what, what I would want is, you know, this, this completely different idea, right? Which is kind of like, you know, tragic if you're a grad student right and you're like working super hard on this idea and then you really felt that your user like doesn't really want the thing that you've been uh, committing to and so you know therein it, it proves this kind of importance of co-design and not just the outcome right but the knowledge that's produced right the, the idea of co-design participatory design design justice is that we're not assuming right off the bat that we know 
what we're designing at all until we talk to folks and say, well, what would be worthwhile, you know? And sometimes, you know, who knows, something that has a little bit more of a cultural lens like this body is worthy might be just what folks want and need, right? So we have to ask the question. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think this idea of co-design is something that we tend to think about more with testing things that we've already made, but I like your insight on starting, you know, from the beginning and challenging the assumptions that we have even going into the start of a project where it could be, you know, most important before we put a lot of energy into making something that, you know, isn't actually, it might be what we think is solving the problem, but it's not what, maybe that's the wrong problem or, you know, not helping the underlying um, challenges that someone's facing. Yeah, totally. It's like getting out of our teenagers. There's some humility in that, in thinking about the the grad student who like, you know, in the mm-hmm. end, it, it's not really about the grad student or the exoskeleton. It's about the user, right? And so there's got to be that humility. Whereas I think oftentimes I definitely feel very attached to my work and it's hard to kind of, you know, reframe and reorient that like it's really for the, about the end user, not about what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, some, this is a very, it's a strange phenomenon. You know, it's like I, when I was, and I'll just speak from my perspective and my experience, not generalizing about teenagers in general. When I was uh, 16, I knew everything there was <laughs> in the world. You know, I knew, I knew every, I, I knew everything, you know? <laughs> and then, you know, I got older, a little bit older. And then every single year I realized that, well, actually I didn't know that much, you know, up until I moved to San Francisco and I was like, oh my God, I don't know anything about anything. <laughs> that was my early 20s. Just being completely lost. I can, like, I don't know who am I, where am I, what am I supposed to do, etc. And then all of a sudden, you know, I got this, like, this skill set. Yes, very relatable. <laughs> and, then, and then I got this skill set, you know, the skill set of a designer, right? And then all of a sudden, I, I did, I, then I became, like, a teacher, you know? So it's, like, not just a designer, but now I'm a teacher. And now, like, oh, maybe I can think that I know everything, right? Because now I have these, like, really hardened, like, skill sets. And I've been affirmed by, you know, someone inviting me to do a talk. And, like, students actually listening to me, et cetera. Right? So then all of a sudden, like, my knowledge and, like, my identity gets hardened again. Um, and I think that's the general process. Like, it's hard to it's, – it's, it's, it's wise for us to remember <laughs> that we really don't know much about anything. Right? And I think that we have many examples of folks in society that get a lot of their time – I think they know a lot and actually don't know very much. So, you know, it is it is that practice of humility. And it can actually be radical, right? It's kind of like, how do we, it's a question, like how can we kind of bring the posture of radical humility into our uh, design processes? You know, that's, that's transformative. Yeah, that's such a good point. I think it's so true in that the more that you learn, the more you realize you don't no, but I think just coming to terms with that terms with that kind of takes the pressure off things. Like the more you sort of accept the fact that you don't know everything and you're not going to. And I think what you're saying, this kind of repeated cycle of growth and maybe even shifting, you know, your knowledge base to a new area, it kind of brings you back to that point where you're more open and to having like your perceptions change and and just this, yeah, just being more open to learning, I guess. And speaking, I guess, similar to 
this idea of continued growth. I saw in one of your quotes, you say in an interview, you said, don't seek stasis, uh, seek confusion, a pandemonia even. And I'm wondering, so it makes sense, I think, not to seek stasis. But in terms of confusion and pandemonia, what are you referring to here? And, and why should we seek that out? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, so it's definitely a really wonderful illustration of like how I've grown in this process also. It's, it's you know, I'll tell you, it's a strange thing when your words are written down in public. <laughs> and then it's like, oh my goodness, yeah. I said that. You know? <laughs> and like, what was that? <laughs> That came out of my mouth. Yeah, it's really good. Totally. It's the weirdest, you know, I mean, I've recently, and, and it's, it's still very strange for me. You know, people will say something like, oh, I saw your talk, and I'm like, oh, my God, and it's turned red, and it's like, oh, I hope I don't know what I said. I hope, you know, you know it was, uh, it's not me. It's just an avatar, and I had long hair, and I cut my hair. Anyway, yeah. it's really nice to like, like, like have yourself uh, going through an identity phase and then get filmed and then people know you by that video. It's really funny. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, so the, what I meant by that quote was, I mean, I think what I was getting to is just this point that we were just talking about, this idea of like being humble and also kind of recognizing that knowledge is not stable. Right, so if we're kind of comfortable in knowing all the answers, right, if we're comfortable in kind of being the expert, then we're just going to kind of seek out, right, psychologically things that say yes to our, our expertise, right? And we're gonna, our world is just going to get tighter and tighter and tighter and smaller and smaller and smaller um, because we're not seeking out any instability in our current kind of mental formations. So for me to kind of say something as, rash, uh, or brash, rather, as, you know, seek confusion, seek pandemonium. I mean, from a disability perspective, that's highly problematic, right? It almost kind of feels like I'm heroicizing forms of either, um, you know, like mental health crises, which I've, you know, personally experienced, so I don't want to ever kind of come off as, you know, a way to kind of, I don't want to come off in a way that I'm um, saying, well, this is all rainbows and butterflies and we can learn from everything you, know, you, you definitely can learn from some things but some things actually aren't uh, are better left in my opinion at least non-commercial uh, <laughs> so like let's not let's not make things like pandemonium and confusion or design uh heuristic please. but what i meant by that is like let's let's shake things up or right? let's unsettle uh, the, the knowledges that we bring into our designs let's shake up the processes that we're used to, right? Let's shake up the edges of the questions that we've asked up to that point, right? Let's kind of use every single opportunity as a way to spread ourselves out a little bit broader. And, and specifically, like, let's involve our body minds in that spreading rather than kind of disassociate and make it a head in a thing, you know? So how do we bring our identities, how do we bring our full selves into a process and use our identities and the folks that we're working with to really unsettle what we're, what we're used to, the status quo or stasis. Mm -hmm. I think all of that just speaks to growth, right? Like it's, that seems like how we grow. We talked about, I liked earlier, you said like sort of these periods of soft versus hard times in your like 
if, if, if you we're talking about all these concepts as like sort of where this pliable clay, like maybe there are times where we are more pliable versus not and more less settled versus un, more unsettled and, and things like that. So yeah, I love just all of that. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I think, you know, Sarah Hendren, who you spoke to recently at a design uh, symposium said something to the effect and I'm paraphrasing, but you know, all design creates openings and closings, you know, and in every single design decision, there are possibilities that are open, and then there are possibilities that are closed, right? So the example that we could go back to is like this synchronous Zoom conference, you know. It's really great because it, it allows right. it allows folks, or even like, you know, what we're doing here, like it allows us to connect from different locations, which is wonderful, right? But, you know, if, if I wasn't able to make it today, and you, uh, which of course you wouldn't say this because you both have been um, delightful. But if you said, "Hey, we can only do it today at this time, and that's it," you know, then that would also, you know, the same thing that is very accessible is also a closure, right? So just thinking in that, like when we experience closures, that's always a site for growth, right? It's always a site for um, checking our assumptions, asking more questions. Yeah, and just speaking of connecting, and we've enjoyed having you here today, and we definitely think our listeners are going to enjoy learning more about you and your work, and maybe even accessing the forthcoming book that you have. Um, so we're just wondering if you could share ways that people can connect, maybe check out your website and and find out about your book. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so the book is a great way to learn more about the work that's near and dear to my heart, and then also how it's situated within other dialogues, I think it's really important. Right? Sometimes, again, we can kind of think about thinkers and writers, etc., as like this, uh, as people who foreground ideas, and not necessarily how those ideas are in conversation with other ideas. So, I really, you know, biasly, of course, um, I think that uh, Extra Bold is a good example of that because, you know, there are a bunch of co-authors right we're not just it's kind of uh you know tearing at the seams so to speak of the traditional model of a book right so it's looking at conversations within nested within different conversations so i think that's a good example uh checking out cryptjoy on instagram is a fun way to just see some of the community organizing work that, that i care about don't check me out on my website because it's definitely not updated so, and I guess, yeah, like any of the, the talks that are out there in the world now with or without long hair uh, is a good way to kind of interface with uh, what, I, <laughs> what I like to talk about. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing this. I know I'm super excited to read your book now and maybe one day I'll be able to, you know, we'll be able to meet in person and I'll get an autographed copy uh, or have you autograph my copy. But yeah, we've learned just so much from you and gained so many valuable insights. And we just want to finish on our favorite question to end on, which is, what are you most excited about for the future of disability and design? This is a, a big question. And um, I'll, again, just kind of narrow it down and say I'm going to answer it from my perspective and specifically like how I'm situated in this conversation, what I'm excited about. Right? I'm excited about just the future of disability design pedagogy. You know, how do we really teach disability design in and outside of universities, right? How do we kind of 
I just um, co-wrote an article with a disability design scholar, um, Emily Brewer, and we were discussing how do we start from ableism as well as kind of starting, in addition to starting from the, the normal kind of functional limitations, quote unquote, model that other disabled um, or disability design pedagogies start from. So I'm really excited about kind of how to and how we might expand disability design pedagogy as something that's truly intersectional, asking questions about kind of embodied learning and involving students and their body minds in the learning processes rather than just kind of um, uh, receptacles, as Paolo Freire might say, for the banking model of education that just get knowledge poured into them. I'm really excited about how things that come from, concepts that come from crit theory, um, like crit time and spoon theory, can then impact classroom cultures um, and workplace cultures, and not just you know, design processes or design outcomes. So yeah, I'm just really excited about what it means um, for folks to be receiving and interested in uh, disability design more now than they, they maybe have um, been in the past. And uh, just see it as a, as a big opportunity for us to continue refining the uh, educational models that we all, not all, but some of us find ourselves in. I mean, you've shared so many different perspectives, I think, about, and I love that you contextualize everything that you're saying and answering with you know, kind of drawing it back to the, it's related to like your thoughts and ideas and opinions and identity. So we also appreciate that. And hopefully, yeah, that educational model, that adaptive, like that awareness will just be more of a sort of ever present thing in our world rather than like, I think hopefully it doesn't take me, you know, 27 years to learn all of these things uh, or to learn more about some of these yeah, ideas, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So thanks, Josh, so much. And for spending time with us today, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Hannah. And I'm Melissa. Thanks to the International Society of Biomechanics for supporting the podcast and to Peter Washington for creating all the music you hear on Boom. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at BiomechanicsOOM and on Instagram and Facebook at Biomechanics on Our Minds. If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, want to share new biomechanics research or research fail, want to host your own episode or be involved in the making of Boom, or just say hi, you can reach out to us at any of our social media platforms or send us an email at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com. Biomechanics, Biomechanics off our minds. minds.